Chapter Fifteen of Undine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pete Williams. Undine by Friedrich de la Motte Fouquet, translated by F. E. Bunnett. Chapter Fifteen: The Journey to Vienna. After this last adventure they lived quietly and happily at the castle. The knight more and more perceived the heavenly goodness of his wife, which had been so nobly exhibited by her pursuit and by her rescue of them in the Black Valley, where Culliborne's power again commenced. Undine herself felt that peace and security which is never lacking to a mind so long as it is distinctly conscious of being on the right path, and besides, in the newly awakened love and esteem of her husband, many a gleam of hope and joy shone upon her. Bertalda, on the other hand, showed herself grateful, humble and timid, without regarding her conduct as anything meritorious. Whenever Huldbrand or Undine were about to give her any explanation regarding the covering of the fountain, or the adventure in the Black Valley, she would earnestly entreat them to spare her the recital as she felt too much ashamed at the recollection of the fountain, and too much fear at the remembrance of the Black Valley. She learned, therefore, nothing further of either, and for what end was such knowledge necessary, peace and joy had visibly taken up their abode at Castle Ringstetten. They felt secure on this point, and imagined that life could now produce nothing but pleasant flowers and fruits. In this happy condition of things, winter had come and passed away, and spring, with its fresh green shoots and its blue sky, was gladdening the joyous inmates of the castle. Spring was in harmony with them, and they with spring. What wonder, then, that its storks and swallows inspired them also with a desire to travel? One day, when they were taking a pleasant walk to one of the sources of the Danube, Huldbrand spoke of the magnificence of the noble river, and how it widened as it flowed through countries fertilized by its waters, how the charming city of Vienna shone forth on its banks, and how with every step of its course it increased in power and loveliness. "'It must be glorious to go down the river as far as Vienna,' exclaimed Bertalda, but, immediately relapsing into her present modesty and humility, she paused and blushed deeply. This touched Undine deeply, and with the liveliest desire to give pleasure to her friend, she said, "'What hinders us from starting on the little voyage?' Bertalda exhibited the greatest delight, and both she and Undine began at once to picture the tour of the Danube in the brightest colors. Huldebrand also gladly agreed to the prospect, only he once whispered anxiously in Undine's ear, "'But Culliborne becomes possessed of his power again out there.' "'Let him come,' she replied with a smile. "'I shall be there, and he ventures upon none of his mischief before me.' The last impediment was thus removed, and they prepared for the journey, and soon after set out upon it, with fresh spirits and the brightest hopes. But wonder not, O oh man, if events always turn out different to what we have intended. That malicious power, lurking for our destruction, gladly lulls its chosen victim to sleep with sweet songs and golden delusions, while on the other hand the rescuing messenger from heaven often knocks sharply and alarmingly at our door. During the first few days of their voyage down the Danube they were extremely happy. Everything grew more and more beautiful as they sailed further and further down the proudly flowing stream. 
but in a region otherwise so pleasant, and in the enjoyment of which they had promised themselves the purest delight, the ungovernable Culliborn began, undisguisedly, to exhibit his power of interference. This was indeed manifested in mere teasing tricks, for Undine often rebuked the agitated waves, or the contrary winds, and then the violence of the enemy would be immediately humbled. But again the attacks would be renewed, and again Undine's reproofs would become necessary, so that the pleasure of the little party was completely destroyed. The boatmen, too, were continually whispering to each other in dismay, and looking with distrust at the three strangers, whose servants even began more and more to forebode something uncomfortable, and to watch their superiors with suspicious glances. Huldbrand often said to himself, this comes from like not being linked with like, from a man uniting himself with a mermaid. Excusing himself as we all love to do, he would often think indeed as he said this, I did not really know that she was a sea-maiden, mine is the misfortune, that every step I take is disturbed and haunted by the wild caprices of her race, but mine is not the fault. By thoughts such as these he felt himself in some measure strengthened, but on the other hand he felt increasing ill-humor, and almost animosity toward Undine. He would look at her with an expression of anger, the meaning of which the poor wife understood well. Wearied with this exhibition of displeasure, and exhausted by the constant effort to frustrate Culliborne's artifices, she sank one evening into a deep slumber, rocked soothingly by the softly gliding bark. Scarcely, however, had she closed her eyes than every one in the vessel imagined he saw, in whatever direction he turned, a most horrible human head. It rose out of the waves, not like that of a person swimming, but perfectly perpendicular, as if invisibly supported upright on the watery surface, and floating along in the same course with the bark. Each wanted to point out to the other the cause of his alarm, but each found the same expression of horror depicted on the face of his neighbor only that his hands and eyes were directed to a different point, where the monster, half laughing and half threatening, rose before them. When, however, they all wished to make each other understand what each saw, and all were crying out, Look there! No there! The horrible heads, all at one and the same time, appeared to their view, and the whole river around the vessel swarmed with the most hideous apparitions. The universal cry raised at the sight awoke Undine, as she opened her eyes, the wild crowd of distorted visages disappeared. But Huldbrand was indignant at such unsightly jugglery. He would have burst forth in uncontrolled imprecations had not Undine said to him with a humble manner and a softly imploring tone, For God's sake, my husband, we are on the water. Do not be angry with me now. The knight was silent and sat down absorbed in reverie. Undine whispered in his ear, would it not be better, my love, if we gave up this foolish journey and returned to Castle Ringstetten in peace? But Huldbrand murmured moodily, So I must be a prisoner in my own castle, and only be able to breathe so long as the fountain is closed? I would your mad kindred. Undine lovingly pressed her fair hand upon his lips. He paused, pondering in silence over much that Undine had before said to him. Bertelda had meanwhile given herself up to a variety of strange thoughts. She knew a good deal of Undine's origin, and yet not the whole, and the fearful Culliborn especially had remained to her a terrible but wholly unrevealed mystery. She had indeed never even heard his name. Musing on these strange things, she unclasped, 
scarcely conscious of the act, a gold necklace which Huldbrand had lately purchased for her of a traveling trader. Half-dreamingly she drew it along the surface of the water, enjoying the light glimmer it cast upon the evening-tinted stream. Suddenly a huge hand was stretched out of the Danube. It seized the necklace and vanished with it beneath the waters. Bertelda screamed aloud, and a scornful laugh resounded from the depths of the stream. The knight could now restrain his anger no longer. Starting up, he inveighed against the river. He cursed all who ventured to interfere with his family and his life, and challenged them, be they spirits or sirens, to show themselves before his avenging sword. Bertelda wept, meanwhile, for her lost ornament, which was so precious to her, and her tears added fuel to the flame of the knight's anger, while Undine held her hand over the side of the vessel, dipping it into the water, softly murmuring to herself, and only now and then interrupting her strange, mysterious whisper, as she entreated her husband, "'My dearly loved one, do not scold me here. Reprove others if you will, but not me here. You know why.' And indeed he restrained the words of anger that were trembling on his tongue. Presently in her wet hand which she had been holding under the waves she brought up a beautiful coral necklace, of so much brilliancy that the eyes of all were dazzled by it. "'Take this,' said she, holding it out kindly to Bertelda. "'I have ordered this to be brought for you, as a compensation. And don't be grieved any more, my poor child.' But the knight sprang between them. He tore the beautiful ornament from Undine's hand, hurled it again into the river, exclaiming in passionate rage, "'Have you then still a connection with them? In the name of all the witches, remain among them with your presence, and leave us mortals in peace, you sorceress!' Poor Undine gazed at him with fixed but tearful eyes, her hand still stretched out, as when she had offered her beautiful present so lovingly to Bertelda. She then began to weep, more and more violently, like a dear innocent child bitterly afflicted. At last, wearied out, she said, Alas, sweet friend, alas, farewell. They shall do you no harm, only remain true, so that I may be able to keep them from you. I must, alas, go away. I must go hence at this early stage of life. Oh, woe, woe, what have you done? Oh, woe, woe. She vanished over the side of the vessel. Whether she plunged into the stream or flowed away with it, they knew not. Her disappearance was like both, and neither. Soon, however, she was completely lost sight of in the Danube. Only a few little waves kept whispering, as if sobbing, round the boat, and they almost seemed to be saying, Oh, woe, woe, oh, remain true, oh, woe. Huldbrand lay on the deck of the vessel, bathed in hot tears, and a deep swoon soon cast its veil of forgetfulness over the unhappy man. End of chapter 15 Recording by Pete Williams, Pittsburgh, PA